everybody and welcome back so remember we were all here listening to um suspect on spotify and um now we're gonna we already listened to episode seven and episode eight eight being the redux and seven being the the benefit of the doubt so, mind my dogs. Um, well, dogs, plural. They're barking. So, and now we're going to listen to episode 9, which is called Haunted. And it's basically Matt, Matthew, aka Matt, who is going to, um... He's been the main one talking besides other people that he's brought into here, like Detective Coates and Emmanuel, all those people. Um, but yeah, he's gonna he's gonna talk more. And it says here in the description on episode nine that Matt and the reporting team visit the various crime, um, the various prime suspects again, including one person who did not expect to see them. So. Okay, so let me just pull that one out now. Campsite Media. Arpana Janaga was 24 when she died. To many of her friends and family, she's still frozen as she was in 2008. A daredevil motorcycle rider, a poet, a singer, a software engineer with a whole career, a whole life ahead of her even today when we had to make a tough decisions we were like oh what would i not do what would i not think what would she say to her two closest friends shri and lalitha arpana is still very much present she is still part of our lives every single day <laughs> every single day i don't think me or chandana uh, forget about her even chandana dream about her every month uh, that she's still alive uh, she constantly dreams about her yes every few months i get a dream like uh, she comes back saying oh i was just this at this place and nothing happened to me i'm absolutely fine yeah and this is the dream i've been having for all these few years and i tell her that uh, she will come back i feel like that that's how i wake up so she's there now I know it's been so many years, but she's there. Shri and Lalitha prefer not to dwell on the grief. Instead, they remember Arpana as she was when she first moved into her apartment at the Valley View. Back then, she sounded happier than they'd ever heard her. Arpana was newly independent, and that little budget apartment complex on the outskirts of Redmond, Washington, was heaven on earth. She said in an email that it's a little paradise and she loved it. Yes, uh, she would share pictures like uh, how it would look when it was drizzling outside and uh, Seattle is considered to be a beautiful place and she would exactly say that. I feel like I'm in my paradise now. Every day I wonder what she'd be doing now. 
Rachel Shout was one of the attendees at the Halloween party at the Valley View, and one of the last people to see Arpana alive. She thinks about Arpana all the time, too. She'd have kids if she'd be married. Uh, and I think about if we'd all still be friends and talking and everybody be happy still. She... She was one of a kind. But yeah, I do feel her. All the time. Arpana had a younger sister who's grown now. Pavitra wrote me an email not long ago. This world has lost a beautiful mind and a beautiful soul. Arpana believed there is good in everybody. Sadly, sometimes even when there was no good in them. I asked Pavitra, what do you make of the way the case ended? She wrote back, we expected justice to be served given how hard the prosecution worked and all the things they accomplished in terms of what can be included in the evidence. And most of all, we were looking for some kind of closure. Because no matter what happens, we cannot get her back. I never got to meet Arpana, but I have gotten to learn about her from her friends and family members like Pavitra. The moment I always come back to is her appearance on that TV show way back in 2005, where she'd come to talk about her award-winning invention and ended up singing a Bollywood love ballad for the host. Arpana, seated, her hair pulled back, wearing a red plaid dress, staring out into the middle distance, completely unaware of what's to come. Hey, Prime members, did you know you could be listening to this podcast ad-free on Amazon Music? Binge top true crime shows like season one and two of Suspect, Morbid, Frozen Head, and hundreds of others ad-free with your Prime membership. To listen, visit amazon.com slash suspect. With Amazon Music, you get access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts. Listen to your favorite shows without the ads, offline, on the go, wherever life takes you with Amazon Music. Start listening by visiting amazon.com slash suspect. One more time, that's amazon.com slash suspect. Most people think about buying jewelry for occasions only. Missouri does fine jewelry differently by celebrating every day, not just the big moments. Their pieces are designed for you to wear your way, whatever your taste, mood, or budget. Discover fairly priced and expertly handcrafted styles to wear and love forever. Missouri works with master jewelers to create pieces that feel like you. Using high-quality, responsibly sourced materials, Missouri's precious metal and gemstones can go everywhere you go because they're made to last. Visit MEJURI.com to shop fine jewelry essentials. That's MEJURI.com. From Campside Media and Wondery, I'm Matthew Scher, and this is Suspect. This 
is the ninth and final episode, Haunted. Through 2020 and early 2021, the reporting team on this show interviewed close to 40 people directly connected to the investigation into Arpana's murder. Almost all of those sources, at some point in the interview process, confessed how much the case haunted them. All these years later, they found it nearly impossible to shake. The acquittal, unfortunately, made things even worse. Brian Coates, the detective, and Aaron Ellert, the prosecutor, were still sure Emmanuel was the killer, still sure they had the right guy. But after the acquittal came in June of 2019, plenty of other people involved in the story suddenly weren't. We trusted the cops when they said they had their guy. But now, after the trial, we're not so sure. I heard this from Arpana's friends. I heard it from her sister back in India. I heard it from Jay, the guy who discovered Arpana's body. Now, we're back to square one. Now, everyone is a suspect again. Last fall, I spent a few days looking for one of the attendees of the party, a guy who had testified at trial, but had more or less vanished afterwards. None of his old cell phone numbers worked. My emails bounced back. I finally found him via a cell phone number that was listed as being connected to his family business. He was angry I'd called, didn't want to talk on the record, didn't want me to use his name at all. But before he hung up on me, he said something interesting. Although he didn't know Emmanuel Fair, had met Emmanuel only once, in fact, he was sure Emmanuel hadn't killed Arpana. The next part's a direct quote, which I scribbled down as he was talking. All the doors to the Valley View were open that night, to all the host's apartments. If anyone really wants to know what happened, they'll start there, because I guarantee you this was someone who walked in off the street. He walked in, he walked out, and Emmanuel took the blame. Click. The idea that a stranger had killed Arpana was something I'd considered a couple times before. Once, when I visited the Valley View and noticed that Arpana's apartment was directly across a footbridge from the parking lot, the first door you'd encounter if entering the complex from the rear. And once, when I read a document prepared by Emanuel's attorneys in 2016. The document is called Defense Memorandum Regarding Other Suspect Evidence. It's a comprehensive analysis of the evidence in the Janaga case that did not point to Emmanuel. And honestly, it's a pretty staggering thing. In the memorandum, Ben Goldsmith is not trying to come to a conclusion about who killed Arpana. He's just highlighting and triple underlining with a Sharpie just how many questions have been left unanswered about other suspects, including two other men with lengthy criminal records. One of those strangers was a man named Israel Keyes, a serial killer and rapist who, the FBI has confirmed, was visiting the Seattle area on Halloween weekend of 2008. The other was an Army veteran named Mark Patrick O'Leary. He was ultimately convicted or connected to at least six sexual assaults or attempted sexual assaults. Two were in Washington State in suburbs of Seattle and the other four were in suburbs of Denver. Um, the two that occurred in Seattle were in August of 2008 and in October of 2008. Um, the assaults that occurred in Denver were in a 15-month period 
from late 2009 to early 2011. Ken Armstrong is a Pulitzer-winning investigative journalist. In 2015, he co-authored an article about the hunt for O'Leary. The article later became the basis for a book and then a TV show called Unbelievable. I asked Ken to describe a bit about how O'Leary worked. In terms of time and place, the, the case that you're looking at, it certainly fits. You know, he was living in Mount Lake Terrace, which is north of Seattle at that time. And the two assaults that he's been connected to in Seattle were shortly before this, right? I mean, one was a couple of months beforehand in August. The other was, I guess, three weeks beforehand. Um, in both of the cases in Seattle, he used shoelaces from the victim to bind them. Ligatures, like the one police suspected had been used on Arpana. And while O'Leary has never been linked to a murder, Armstrong suspects he hasn't confessed to everything he did. The assaults they committed were so violent, even though in, in none of those six instances were the women killed. They were violent. They were, there was a sadistic element to them. Prosecutors have been the first to look into the possibility O'Leary had killed Arpana, but Ben went a step further. In 2015, he visited O'Leary in prison. He was reluctant to talk to us initially. He thought uh, that we were perhaps reporters, and so I assured him that I wasn't a reporter, but let him know that I was defending another client in a case, and I wanted to talk to him about his possible involvement in that. Their conversation was terse strained. O'Leary confirmed to Ben that he preferred to attack women in the early morning hours, when they were likely to be asleep or off their guard. Shockingly, he also admitted he had surveyed apartment complexes in Redmond in the fall of 2008. How many? Ben asked. O'Leary kind of shrugged. He had no idea. Anyway, he said he had not killed Arpana Janaga. When Brianne Hughesby, at the state police crime lab, had run samples from the crime scene against O'Leary's DNA profile. She had come up empty. Still, it's worth adding a couple of caveats here. O'Leary was exceedingly careful when it came to leaving traces of himself at crime scenes. And Brienne only tested evidence that she considered probative, meaning she thought it would help prove who had killed Arpana. Of course, what was considered probative and what wasn't was ultimately an educated guess. And in the end, that's true of so much of this investigation, as it's true of any case where no one has come forward and confessed to the crime. What's left is guesses, educated in a best-case scenario, not so educated in the worst. Stories, in other words, that everyone involved, prosecutors and defendants, forensic analysts or jurors, used to try to understand why and how. Jurors at Emanuel's trial heard two radically different stories. Emanuel murdered a stranger in cold blood, covered up the act like a professional criminal, and deserved a life sentence. Or, Emanuel had nothing to do with Arpana's murder, was unfairly targeted by police and prosecutors on the strength of ambiguous DNA evidence, and should be set free. But Ben Goldsmith, the public defender who represented Emanuel, presents a third story a third potential outcome. 
I think like a truly honest, objective person looking at this case would say, I don't know what happened. I don't know who did this. Ben's wearing a mask here, by the way. That's why he sounds the way he does. I b firmly believe Emmanuel was innocent, but I guess I would have hoped that a law enforcement entity like the Redmond Police or the King County Prosecutors would look at this case with this sort of objectivity and say, listen, this is a terrible crime committed against an innocent person. I, you know, Arpana didn't deserve this. Nobody deserves this. But nobody deserves to be convicted of a crime they didn't commit. And looking at this evidence, if I were a prosecutor, I would hope, you know, I'd have the bravery to say, I'm sorry, I don't know who did this. The defense memorandum regarding other suspect evidence is 43 pages long, plus thousands of additional pages of exhibits. And the bulk of it is not about possible strangers like O'Leary or Israel Keys. It's an extended consideration of someone much closer to the victim. Cameron Johnson's statements contain many falsehoods and inconsistencies that are evidence of his consciousness of guilt, the document reads and of his attempts to mislead investigators. There is, of course, the material that had come out at trial. Cameron's trip to Canada, his DNA at the crime scene, the search for a pawn shop in the days following the murder, or the misleading answers about when he called Arpana. There's also the fact that Cameron's BlackBerry was later scrubbed of call and text data. There was his despondent behavior around his family in the following weeks. And finally, there was a question the jurors heard about at the trial that Cameron had asked one of his best friends shortly after Arpana's body had been discovered. Could I have killed Arpana in my sleep? But the memo doesn't stop there. It includes more discoveries that jurors never heard. There's a witness interview, for example, from a friend of Cameron's who recalls watching Cameron punch walls throw his cell phone through a door, and generally freak out, as one friend puts it. And there's an entry in Cameron's journal where he remembers getting suspicious that his girlfriend at the time had slept with a friend. He exploded at the woman, getting, quote, really loud. I got angrier and angrier. I don't remember much more except that I kicked a hole in her living room wall, which I patched later. I don't know if I was just reading into things too much. To be totally clear, none of this is evidence of guilt. But Cameron was the former lead suspect in Arpana's killing. He was someone that prosecutors and police officers, not just Emanuel's defense attorneys, still openly discussed as being potentially involved. He was worth trying to talk to. I found Cameron's profile on Facebook and sent him a friend request, which he accepted. His profile showed he'd left Redmond for a small city about a three-hour drive from Seattle. He was working as an engineer. In a lot of his pictures, he was smiling broadly, his dark hair cut close to the scalp. And so, last November, me and my co-reporters, Eric and Natalia, piled into an SUV and drove east out of Seattle on I-90, through North Bend and Tanner, and then over the Cascade Mountains to try and talk to Cameron. Cameron. 
This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. That's because Audible is the home of storytelling. You'll discover thousands of podcasts from popular favorites to exclusive new series, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, comedy, and exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned Pod to 500 game for you. Sit back, your inner detective. We arrived around lunchtime in front of the apartment complex that had shown up on public record searches for Cameron's name. All right, so we're pulling up now. We're pulling basically off a, off like a strip mall. There's a, like a long corridor of endless strip malls. And now we're um, crossing a set of uh, rail tracks. It's kind of like weirdly industrial. In the mountains, it had been snowing, but in Cameron's city was bright and clear. His truck, which he'd included in several photographs on Facebook, was not in the designated spot, and the windows of his unit, which faced the lot, looked dark. I rang the doorbell, but no one was home. We walked back down to the parking lot, got back in the car, and dialed Cameron's cell phone, which went to voicemail. Four, two, six, is not available. Hey Cameron, my name's Matt Share. I'm a journalist. I'm actually here in was hoping to talk to you about a project I'm working on about the murder of Arpana Janaga. Wanted to get your perspective on a few things. Eric, Natalia, and I thought through our next steps. We could wait for Cameron to come back, although we might be waiting forever. We could try an address that appeared to be in the middle of an office park. Or we could try a third address that had popped up on a business registry. A house a little outside town. A house that was not owned by Cameron, according to the deed, or anyone with his last name. But hey, it was worth a shot. Yeah, let's go there first. All right, let's go. The house was a brown, low-slung ranch with a bunch of Christmas decorations out front. There was a black pickup truck parked in the driveway, the same one we'd seen on Cameron's Facebook. Natalia stayed in the car, and Eric and I walked to the door with Eric holding the mic. Inside, we could see kids' toys scattered across the floor. A young woman walked towards us. Hey, how you doing? We're looking for Cameron? Yeah, let me me go get him. Okay, sure. Yeah, Uh, someone's here for you. A few seconds later, Cameron appeared. He kind of stood half in, half out of the house, with the door blocking his chest like a shield. Hey, Cameron. My name's Matt Scher. I'm a journalist. We're not going to play the full tape here, but I can summarize the discussion. I told Cameron that we were working on a podcast series about the murder of Arpana Janaga. Cameron, understandably, wanted to know how we'd found him, which I explained. I added that journalistically, ethically, it was important to have his perspective. He was polite, nice enough, but he was shaking, like tremoring. He told us he couldn't talk, that any question should go to his attorney. But as we lingered at the door, he said something else. He said, it is the scariest thing that ever happened in my life. It literally pushed me apart. And then he slowly shut the door. In subsequent... Any question should go to his attorney. But as we lingered at the door, he said something else. He said, it is the scariest thing that ever happened in my life. It literally pushed me apart. And then he slowly shut the door.
In subsequent weeks, I sent a handful of emails to his lawyers asking for comment. Emails I know they received and discussed. They did not respond to a single one. Cameron Johnson may have moved away from the Seattle area with little fear of running into anyone who has ever heard the name Arpana Janaga. But Emmanuel Fair, whose name and photograph had been plastered on the evening news for years, he was trying to restart his life in the place where he had always lived. I recently drove with Emmanuel to Volunteer Park in Seattle to meet with Ben Goldsmith. Ben had slipped out of his office between meetings and was waiting for us on the steps of the Asian Art Museum. The two men jogged towards each other, Emmanuel big and lumbering, Ben slim and medium height, his face covered by a surgical mask. Yeah, man. I, will, I, will, I want to run and give you a hug, but it's corona, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? How you doing, man? You look great. Ah. It's great to see you out here. Yeah, man. It's good to see you too, man. Yeah. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, of course. It's my attorney, Benjamin Goldsmith. That's me. Sir Ben. <laughs> you know? Yeah, man. You taking care of yourself? Yeah, I'm trying, man. One step at a time. One day at a time. We found a bench in the sunshine under a tree. Emmanuel stretched out, leaned back. A year, he recalled. A year since his release. Yeah, it's been a year. I know, I know. Catherine and I almost texted you on the anniversary but we didn't yeah, you know yeah, we didn't want to be like you know what's crazy is um i wasn't even paying attention to it then i looked at the calendar i'm like oh wow you know yeah it's a whole year you know but it's good it's good to be out you know moving forward yeah. moving forward though requires thinking about what has happened you know it's a lot of reflecting thinking about all them bad days, you know what I'm saying? I just got an opportunity to have better ones. So that's important. Yeah, I can't even imagine. You got to be an incredibly strong person to make it through what you've been through. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people, a lot of people say that, like, how are you not crazy and this and that? And, you know, I mean, reading, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? That's what helped me. Reading, you know, I knew I was going to get out. I just didn't know how long it was going to take. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When I think about Emmanuel's case, when I talk about it, I sometimes struggle to find the right terms. For a while, for example, I found myself mistakenly saying Emmanuel was exonerated because, well, that's what it felt like. But he wasn't exonerated. Because to be exonerated, you have to be convicted of a crime first. And Emmanuel never was. He was, according to our legal principles, always innocent, never a murderer. In that sense, maybe you can look at Emmanuel's case as a triumph of justice. He was appointed an exceedingly capable attorney who mounted a vigorous case that ultimately led to his acquittal. If that's what it was, though, a triumph of justice... Well, it wasn't the kind of triumph of justice we sometimes see in movies or on TV. There was no last-minute discovery that a cop had planted evidence or that the DA was corrupt. It was a trial in the other sense of the word, a test, a series of events that tried the faith and patience and skill of nearly every figure it touched. 
and a series of events with precious few happy endings. At least not unqualified happy endings. For Ben Goldsmith, yeah, he had gotten his client acquitted. But that client still spent nine years in a jail cell waiting to prove it. For Emmanuel, he's out. But his new present is shackled to the past. A few months after I hung out in the park with Emmanuel and Ben, I went back to Seattle one last time to spend a couple more days with Emmanuel. It was mid-autumn now. It felt like the stereotype of Seattle outside. Gray, rainy, with the hills cloaked in a low-hanging fog. But for Emmanuel, it seemed like a time of new beginnings, at least on the surface. He bought a car for the first time in his life. After a year of struggling to find employment, he had landed a job working security. He was thinking about getting an apartment of his own. Everything seemed to be coming together. But then that past would come creeping back into the present. Emmanuel would lie awake through the night. He was having trouble sleeping because of his asthma. Sometimes, sometimes I don't even sleep. You know, sometimes I, uh, I get paranoid sometimes. And sometimes I, sometimes I, I hear people kicking on, on the like the jail cell doors and stuff, like in my sleep, and I wake up, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm at the house. At times during our visit, Emmanuel was agitated. Something was bothering him. When we went back with him to his neighborhood, the Central District, he still felt like he did back in his gang days, like he had to watch his back like someone was coming for him. When we talked about why you didn't um, report, you said there were some neighborhoods that like, you felt you were unsafe. Do you still feel that way? Oh, yeah, I still feel that way right now. Like where we are right, right now? Even in my own neighborhood, yeah, I don't, trust, I don't trust somebody. The next day, he declined a call from an old friend. He said she had not visited the jail where he was being held. In fact, he hadn't heard from her for nine years. Now, she was calling him. She wanted to get back into his life. I got a whole bunch of friends that be calling me and, or on social media trying to hang out, and I'm not really into that, you know? I'm just not getting along with some of my coworkers, you know, at my job that I'm working, you know? And I just mind my business, man, and just do my job. I don't really say too much. Because you feel like you can't trust them? Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't trust anybody. You know? No one. The end of this visit was when I watched the walls Emmanuel keeps around himself crumble. Like, he could talk about emotion, talk about pain, talk about what he'd been through. He could do it for hours on end. And he did. But he'd always seem detached from those feelings. Does your outlook feel different now than it did two years ago or a year ago, I guess? Yeah, but, I mean, there's still no closure until there's justice. You know what I'm saying? There's got to be some kind of justice for that family, you know? I mean, as of right now, my ju- my only justice is being, being out. I'm still not free. I'm just out. You know what I'm saying? It hangs over you. Right. And can you, uh, like, if, what if it hangs over you for the rest of your life? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to be depressed for the rest of my life. You know? 
Simple as that. But I, I mean, I still got to keep living. You know, I'm still got to keep moving. You know. We put you there not today. <laughs> yeah. Let's just sit here for one minute of silence. At this point, Kyle, our field producer, he asked for a moment of silence to record the room tone. It's necessary for audio editing. Everyone else, we just sort of stared at our hands. But Emmanuel, he was crying. I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm gonna die soon. I mean, I don't know. Why? This is, I don't know. What makes you feel that? Emmanuel remembered that his mom had died almost two decades ago on exactly the same day. Then he pointed to the car he just bought, his new driver's license. I got this car in my name. I just feel like police could just run me and just who knows what happened. Because it's just show up. That's what I got to live with, man, but it's all good, man. Eventually, he wiped his face. He was due at work in a few hours. The overnight shift. You gonna be all right tonight? Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna be all right. We all sat there, not knowing quite what to do or say. Then Emmanuel flashed the barest hint of a smile. You guys are making me nervous now. which is basically the aftermath of the verdict and Emmanuel Fair's trial and that he has been exonerated, just like how the how we spoke about in earlier podcast episodes about the exonerated five of the Central Park case. Um, it also talks well enough about Emmanuel Fair's situation, living situation, and, it, and he's basically saying it fucking sucks. It's, uh, um, the way I'm hearing it, it does fucking suck. And my apologies if I was making noise in the background. I'm just <laughs> trying to listen, trying to make myself comfortable in my chair. And, um, yeah. Um, his living situation fucking sucks because his coworkers hate him. Um, people that used to be friends with him were no longer friends with him, didn't even freaking visit him in jail. He's getting nightmares. He's not sleeping. And you might say serves him fucking right for murdering Arpana Janaga, but no. Some, like, I believe, and I know I said I might tell you guys in the end, but I'm going to tell you guys now. But I believe he didn't do this. There's someone out there that must have done it. That knew Arpana, that liked her, couldn't have her, 
and raped her and murdered her. You know? Because there are cases like that in the world. And, um, I don't believe it was him because, yes, the evidence was the fact that they had the toilet paper because he touched it because Neil punched him in the fucking face and the lip and he bled. So that's why. And there's no other evidence that he touched it, but um, that's what I heard. But we, people based on the facts that we're listening on suspect, we don't know that for certain. We just know based on the fact what what um Matt, Matthew Share told us, the podcaster of suspect. But based on all that, I believe he wasn't the one who had done this. He is not the person responsible for Arpanajanaga's death. And I believe that to be so. Um, anyway, we're going to be listening to episode 10, the last one of season one of Suspect. And season, in this season, it was whew, a lot because of the flavor evidence, the suspects, the scene, the crime scene, and, um, and everything. So, the based on what the synopsis of episode 10 reports, which is called Reporting Suspect. Um, it says in the description, what is ne- what happens next in the Arpana Janaga murder case? Matt Shear, um, technically Matthew Shear, speaks with Matt Biangelo, if I'm pronouncing it right, it's B-A-G-L-I-O. That's his name. Matthew. Probably Matthew because it's, it's spelled the same way as Matthew Shear. But he has it has his name on the description under Matt as well. The host of Wondery series Over My Dead Body. The Fox Lake about what the series tells us about the American criminal justice system, what it feels like to visit the Valley View apartments and which interview was the most challenging. So they're gonna go into depth on in how they went and how they approached certain things as a reporter. So, be mindful that people try their best here, to the best of their ability, to get certain details correct and fact-checked. Because sometimes as a reporter, even when I used to do this, not like the certain researching aspect, but when I used to do journalism, it takes a lot of stuff. And whatever we can't do, we can't do. It's under our... It's not, it's not our fault. It is our fault, but it's not really our fault. But that's... Not our problem that we get, that we only get so little information based on some of these people that have been to these places, have seen what happened, and they're not giving us so much information. And I understand what these detectives go through. I'm not saying because I've been there. I'm saying because in general, they get so little information based on the people that have been to the party, have talked to Arpana. You know, it, it, I understand what these detectives are going through. But anyway, I'm going to get that set up for episode 10. And after that, I'll tell you what happens next. Campsite Media. Her door looks like it's been kicked in. Okay, is she breathing? I I don't know. I didn't even get close to it. Stay in the phone. We're going to get the police department on the way, okay? Hold on. Okay. In 2008, a young woman named Arpana Janaga was found dead in her apartment in Redmond, outside of Seattle. 
he said i'm sorry to tell man she's no more and uh, i was like no are you sure about that that cannot be arpana had been killed in the wake of a halloween party at her complex as investigators began to look into the murder they used a shorthand to describe witnesses and potential people of interest the construction worker the bank robber jesus's secretary but eventually they trained their focus on one man Emmanuel Fair. And he's like I'm at Washington State Penitentiary. He's like I don't know why I'm here. They just brought me here. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I was like, how do you not know this stuff? A major part of the case against Emmanuel Fair involved DNA. And some of his DNA did appear on the victim's body and clothing. But other suspects had left their DNA on the scene too. And when it came time for Emmanuel to stand trial, almost a decade after Arpena's death, his lawyer Ben Goldsmith questioned the state's interpretation of the DNA. There are all these things that were aligning against Emmanuel which made it all that much more important to be the person who would try to help. Did it really show that Emmanuel was the killer? Or had prosecutors made up their mind then used DNA to fit their theory of the case? Emmanuel Fair is now a free man. has been for a couple of years. He's in the process of putting his life back together. Together with a civil lawyer, he's preparing a lawsuit against King County. Still, justice feels a long way off. No one else has been arrested for the murder of Arpena, and the case remains for all intents and purposes completely cold. In this episode, I'm talking with Matt Baglio, reporter and host of the third season of Over My Dead Body. Matt Baglio and I will talk about getting out and reporting, what the case at the center of suspects says about the American criminal justice system, and what's next for Emmanuel Fair. Hey, Prime members! Did you know you could be listening to this podcast ad-free on Amazon Music? Binge top true crime shows like season one and two of Suspect. Morbid, Frozen Head, and hundreds of others ad-free with your Prime membership. To listen, visit amazon.com/suspect. With Amazon Music, you get access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts. Listen to your favorite shows without the ads, offline, on the go, wherever life takes you with Amazon Music. Start listening by visiting amazon.com/suspect. One more time, that's amazon.com/suspect. Playlist feeling a little meh. It's probably because it's curated by a boring algorithm and not a human. But with the Amp app, you've got real people curating unreal playlists live. Amp is a new live radio app where top artists, creators and athletes spin their favorite tracks and take your calls in real time. When artists like Nicki Minaj, Joe Budden, and Lil Yachty have the ox and the mic, you know you're in for a wild ride without the filters. Download Amp from the App Store to start listening. That's A M P. From Campside Media and Wondery, I'm Matthew Share, and this is a special episode of Suspect. In 
Suspect, we chronicle some of the challenges that arise in the course of a complex murder investigation. How do you get answers when only two people have them, and one of them is dead? In Over My Dead Body, Fox Lake, the team is also seeking answers about a murder investigation. I actually reported and hosted season one of Over My Dead Body, which was called Tally. It told the story of the murder of a renowned law professor in Tallahassee, Florida. Season two was the story of the feud between Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin. This season is about another conflict pushed to the limits and the mysterious death of a police officer in a town called Fox Lake. Today, I'm going to hand the interviewing duties off to Matt Baglio, the reporter and host of Fox Lake. Without further ado, Matt, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Matt, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Listen to Suspect, and I, I have to say, I was really, really impressed with the amount of time and effort that you and your team put into reporting this story. So, Matt, this podcast it was quite an undertaking, and, and I'm curious to know how it got started. In the podcast, you mentioned that you got an email out of the blue informing you about um, Arpena's murder and the main suspect, Emmanuel. Why, why did you respond to that email? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because this is a podcast that was directly inspired by one email that in another circumstance I might have overlooked. I think if if you report on the criminal justice system enough, you're used to these emails or letters, and sometimes they come from people who are incarcerated. Sometimes they come from families of people who are incarcerated. Uh, sometimes they come from lawyers. And the honest truth is that a lot of the time, you really want to respond, but you also don't know what you're able, what you can do for this person, right? You know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a police officer. I'm not a private investigator. I'm a journalist. So I always try to respond, but I also always try to be honest about what I might be capable of doing for somebody. But this email um, was different because it was an email that I felt like I actually did have an answer to because the email involved DNA science, forensic DNA. And I just finished this long uh, investigation for the Atlantic magazine about DNA science, about how it can be misinterpreted by people and how technology is getting so good that it, you know, it's, it's almost too sensitive in some cases. Anyway, all to say that I was basically primed to receive this kind of email. And when I got it, I said, oh, the email said, you know, there's this case, it involves DNA, it's a murder investigation, it's ongoing. I did reply and I did say, you know, I'm just coming off this article. This is something that I may be able to help with because not only do I know the subject matter relatively well, but I um, had just finished interviewing a bunch of folks in the field, lawyers and forensic analysts who were really involved with thinking through what the repercussions of this advanced technology could be on the criminal justice system and who it was being used for and who it was being used against. So I wrote back right away, and uh, it was a matter of days before I was in touch with Emmanuel's attorneys. You mentioned that you get a lot of emails. I know you're, you're an investigative journalist. You're looking at stories. So had you heard about this story in any way? Had you read news articles or anything before this email had got to you? No, I mean, and this is probably a point worth 
worth making that this is a story that, and I, I still don't know why this is the case, what the answer to this is or, or the explanation, but this is a story that had really not resonated outside the Pacific Northwest. And in fact, even if you lived in Seattle uh, or in King County, where the investigation took place, there's a pretty good chance you didn't know about it. So no, I hadn't heard of it. And yes, it was out of the blue. What had happened was a friend of Emmanuel's um, in the facility where he was then incarcerated had read the Atlantic article and said, oh, you know, this is this guy's talking about exactly uh, what's involved in your case. You should reach out to him. And it was a friend that reached out on Emmanuel's behalf. So you had this initial curiosity, you had the experience with DNA, and you reach out to uh, Emmanuel, and tell me about that first contact that you guys made. What, what was that like, not really having, knowing anything about it, and then having him tell you that initial spark of the, the story? It was a frustrating first experience trying to get in touch with Emmanuel because if you've ever corresponded or, or called um, or spoken by phone with someone who's incarcerated, you know, they only have uh, certain amounts of uh, time that inmates at, at facilities like the one Emmanuel was in uh, to to make calls. And then when we got on the call, you know, you can hear this in some of Emmanuel's interviews that are in the podcast. It's Emmanuel has been... He was incarcerated for so long. He sat through his two two trials, was not able to verbally participate in those trials. And he, he's participated in so many interviews, and I'm not even counting the police interrogations, that it's almost like it be, it's become almost rote to him. And, you know, it was frustrating in that regard because it was like it, by no fault of his own, but he didn't know what I didn't know because he knew so much about the case. And so it was very much, I was. It, it was a process of trying to find my footing, basically, and trying to understand exactly what had happened in the order that it had happened in. And the person who was integral in that regard was Ben Goldsmith, who was Emmanuel's um, second public defender. And Emmanuel gave Ben permission to talk to me off the record at that point and to share documentation, uh, including transcripts. And that was when I really did start to wrap my head around it. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting. And in, in the story, it has such a, a long lifespan. I mean, it's still going on. And, you know, it happened, the event happened in 2008. But it sounds like when you got involved, even years after the fact, it you you were still very much the story was still unresolved. You were still very much in the middle of it. Yeah, I mean, and and then you think of what happened at the end of the second trial, right, with the acquittal, which sort of is a is a reset again, right, and leaves things even uh, more unresolved because there are people out there who believe that Emmanuel Fair killed Arpanet, even though he has been acquitted of the crime. Um, but when the when the acquittal happens, then it's sort of all up in the air again, right? It's it's like, you know, who, who is anyone ever going to get arrested for this? But even when Emmanuel was in jail waiting for the second trial, there was a sense that, yeah, it had happened a long time ago, but everybody was had just been really um, affected by different parts of this case, right? And, and and affected in a way that made it very difficult for them to leave it or to not be super emotionally involved. 
in it. And that went for ARPAN as friends and, and, and family members. It, it went for um, witnesses who had been at the party uh, the night that ARPANO was killed. And it, it was, I, it sounds a little reductive, but I think it really is the truth in this case that people wanted justice in some way. They wanted resolution and they weren't getting it. And that's often when, as a journalist, you find the most you find people most willing to speak to you, right? And and again, like this goes for the other side of the equation, right? I mean, Aaron Ellert, Brian Coates, uh, the the prosecutor and detective, respectively. I don't know this for sure, but I would wager a big reason they talked to uh, Eric and Natalia and I is that they also feel that it's unresolved, right? In a in a frustrating way. So, yeah, I mean, and and it's not over, right? In a sense, it's a cold case now. I guess officially it might be a cold case. But, you know, people are going to be thinking about this and wondering for the rest of their lives. Who would you say was the most challenging interview you had to do? In terms of emotional interviews, I found the interview with Jeff, the juror, to be challenging in the sense that this was a person whose conception of what it would mean to be a juror and to be a part of the criminal justice system was so radically different from mine and what I ho- would hope anyone's would be that it just kind of, it was like an exercise in me getting my incredulousness under control and, and um, trying to finish the interview. In terms of pure emotion, and, and you can hear this in, in the show, um, Jay, uh, the family friend who found Arpana's body, um, I interviewed him in person, and he was there with his son. And, uh, he, you know, it's often really easy with this kind of reporting to forget um, how these cases can affect people who aren't, you know, a, a family member of the victim or, or a, you know, a super close friend. It's like these cases are like storms or like hurricanes, right? Like they they destroy everything that, that gets close to them. And Jay was so open about what he had been through and so hurt by it, right? And also that he brought along his son because it was so important for him to tell his son what he'd been through and and to try to explain to him. It's just, it was really moving. And um, I have so much gratitude and appreciation for Jay uh, for doing that interview because, uh, frankly, I don't know if I was in his position if I if I would have done it. So again, you know, different different types of challenging, but challenging nonetheless. I'm Ash and I'm Elena. We host the hit show Morbid. Normally, we focus on what happens in the lead up to death because for him, their family apart. What if you were trafficked into a cult or was you extraordinary the struggle shining the very This is a story that takes place in in the in Seattle area and it sounds like you you did a lot of on on the ground research as far as places that you went were there any um any experiences there that really touched touched you um in some way when you visited them in person 
when we really started making our plans for the in-person trips, there was a part of me that was like, man, you know, is this really going to be worth it to do this, right? To, to fly. It's the first time I'd flown during the pandemic. Um, is it worth the energy that we're going to put into this kind of travel to, to be there? And the short answer is that it was, right? Because uh, on the one hand, it allowed us to experience places and see places and on a technical level collect tape from places that were integral to the story, right? So that includes the passageway that leads from the King County Courthouse to the jail. It includes the botanical gardens. It includes the valley view. And, you know, you can use Google Maps and you can get somebody on a Zoom call, but being able to see these places and to hear them is it you can't replace that right there's there's no replacement for it and that became very much part of the story right there as a reporter you can cold call people all you want you can use facebook as a tool to track people down we did both of those in this story you can beg people for um cell phone numbers um but nothing beats being able to knock on a door, right? And the Valley View is a good example. I had no, you know, I was striking out trying to find Arp and his neighbor, who effectively really the only witness that exists to the crime, the 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 man who heard, almost certainly heard Arpana being killed, Kyle, uh, who lived on the other side of the wall from her. Uh, I tried, you know, days trying to find him nothing like nothing doing and then we get to the valley view and uh it's the middle of the day we're walking around and there's some guy outside and we're like hey uh did you used to live here in 2008 guy said i did but i didn't go to the party and said then we said well have you heard of a guy named kyle rose he's like he's right upstairs i'll give him a call right now and we got him you know we had an interview with him the next morning it was as easy as that so there are workarounds now and we're we're getting better at learning what they are in this coronavirus age but uh it's very hard to completely work around being there in person sure no it was it was very similar for fox like it was a challenge to report it during covid but once you go there, there's just certain places have a feel to them. And, you know, they definitely inform your storytelling. But also as a as a journalist, as a writer, you know, you're trying to communicate what these characters and these people uh, are going through. And so being there and seeing it in person. Did you go up to Arpana's door at the Valley View? Did you, yeah. you know, how, how close did you get to that experience? Yeah, we we did, and um, we talked to the guy who. It's a man who lives there now, in in her unit. You know, he he'd been separated by two previous tenants from Arpana, um, and you know, I never n- knew her. And you know, we said, "Hey, can we talk to you?" But he declined. He didn't really have anything to say. But we'd seen the crime scene footage and and photos and in a sense i'd almost seen way more than i wanted to see of arpana's apartment the order that all this happened is that we started looking eric and natalia and i started looking into the case compiling all the reporting then we got some photos and uh from the party and from the crime scene and it was just uh just devastating to see and then you know, by the time we got to the Valley View, it was it was like I 
don't need to see the inside of that apartment. I thought it would be much more important, and it ultimately was, to get the perspective of uh, people who had been there that night, because that really was a little bit of the missing piece, right? It was like, what order did everything happen in? Um, what did people remember and what couldn't they remember? Uh, and what did the police ultimately do with that information? Those were, those were the most important things to us. There's this really important thread that runs through a uh, suspect about the criminal justice system and how it does discriminate against people like uh, Emmanuel. And it sounds like it sort of came about organically. Like you were interviewing Emmanuel, you were talking to Ben, and then you just started looking at the facts. Uh, and it just, it really struck me how well you were able to incorporate that into the narrative and how how important it is to the story because it's really, I, I guess, fundamental to understanding how the police went about trying to investigate this uh, this homicide. And, you know, and, and I wondered if you were, were, were you discovering things as well about the criminal justice system while you reported this story? Did you learn something new yourself? Well, most importantly, we were discovering things about Emmanuel's case, right? So when Emmanuel was younger, when he was 20, he was charged with, with rape. And I did not know the circumstances of that case because it was not, it could not be admitted at the, at the, at the trials. The judge uh, forbade prosecutors from introducing it. It was sort of in the press accounts, but it wasn't really. And so we spent a lot of time. I mean, we spent, you know, a solid couple of months, um, processing this and talking about it and thinking about how to present it to people. Uh, we had um, a female producer, Natalia, lead the um, reporting on that. And we talked to as many people as we could, including the victim. And we ultimately decided that we would do convey just the facts as, as we understood them, exactly what had happened. Um, while honoring um, the victim's uh, own statements. And it was the biggest single challenge in making this show, and it was not something we ever took lightly. But when you pull back and you start to look at the case as a whole, right, and this is, this is where I do feel like I learned a lot, right, um, and where I do start to get a sense of how things happened the way that they did. I do not think that the Redmond Police Department should not have looked into Emmanuel Fair as a potential suspect based on his criminal history. But I do think that the way that he was ultimately treated from the beginning to the end of his experience with this particular murder investigation was not how a lot of other people would be treated and probably not how a white person would be treated. Now, I can't get inside police officers' heads. I can't get inside prosecutors' heads. But I do know that the American criminal justice system has a deep and long-held problem with systemic racism 
And I do believe that Emmanuel, in his circumstances, was from from a young age came in direct contact with that criminal justice system and that it shaped him and that it still affects him today. And it's, I just don't think you can pry these two things apart. And I think this is sort of, if you're asking about the realizations that we, we made during the show, one is that it's very hard for people to say, and I include myself in this, it's very hard for people to say, to separate, um, parts of our history, right? Like we, we look at people who have a long rap sheet and we say, well, that must be who that person is. But it's not always who that person is. It's often a, a product of forces well beyond their control, uh, which I think in, in a lot of ways is what happened to Emmanuel. The other realization, and it sounds a little more prosaic or, or I don't know, mundane, is that People in the criminal justice system have immense amounts of power in their decisions. And again, it's it's like, well, you can say that, but of course they have immense amount amount of power. Um, we as a society vest that power in them. But when you see it in this way, as, as we tried to lay it out in this podcast, um, what you're really seeing is almost like a, a manual loses a little bit of agency, right? And it becomes, he's almost like passed from person to person, each of whom makes a decision that affects his future, right? It's the investigators, it's the forensic analysts, it's the prosecutors, it's the jurors, it's his own defense attorney, right? And the amount of power that all of those people hold over what happens to him and what happened to him is immense. It's it's just it's hard to wrap your head around. And I, you know, I, I think that the clearest example here is, is when you talk to the jurors, right. Or when, when we talk to the jurors who you hear from in the show and it's like, you, these are people who have another human's life completely in their hands. And you want to think they understand the criminal justice system perfectly. they, you hope that they do, or at least their duties perfectly, because look at the power that they have now over over somebody's life. And when you find out that that power is maybe, I'm trying, struggling for the nice way to say this, maybe not taken as seriously as 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 you would hope, or that the knowledge isn't there, or maybe even that it's willful ignorance, that it's you know, it's dismaying. And that's the kind of stuff that can, that I personally find myself thinking about now and thought about long after the reporting for this was done. You bring in a great element to the story and that's, and that's science. So, so we have this perception, right? We have the jurors are looking at the person on the on trial and they're making their own you know judgments based off their appearance do they have do they look like a criminal you know whatever but then you have this thing right with dna this science right and it seems to you know this is going to cure all that you know this is going to be the equalizer right this is but it, it it's not really like that it's kind of like a double edged sword and i wonder if you could talk about that a little bit like how 
how you feel about DNA being used in the courtroom and and is that um, really this equalizer that's going to bring the truth out? Well, that's what we're accustomed to thinking, right? That it is, that it's the law and order SVU green light, that this is the person who committed the crime. The problem is, as we discuss and sort of quite a bit in this show, DNA does tell you who, but it doesn't tell you where or when. You know, DNA can be transferred. DNA can sit on objects for long periods of time. So it's a, it's a fallacy, this idea that shows like Law & Order SVU promote that just the presence of DNA on a crime scene is proof of a person's guilt. Now, there are a lot of people who are far smarter than I who have done a lot of thinking about the usage of forensic DNA in investigations like this. And what they would say that any tool in the criminal justice system, prosecutors and police have historically found a way to use it against minorities in some way. And I'm, I'm not saying this happened. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that this happened in this case because I can't get into people's brains. I think it raises the specter that something like this happened in this case. And, and Ben Goldsmith would argue that it did, uh, which is the sort of tail wags the dog thing, right? Where let's say um, you and I are detectives and we go into a crime scene and we see somebody passing by, it looks a little weird. And we're like, oh, that guy, you know, let's look into him. And then because we're so focused on him, we're starting to find evidence that fits our theory and we're starting to discard the evidence that does not fit our theory. So yes, we do end up finding this person's DNA inside the crime scene, but we also find a bunch of other DNA inside the crime scene and on the victim. But we don't, you know, we, we think about it, but we don't decide to go in that direction because part of us has already made up our mind, right? And this is um, a real fear, and it is something that can happen. It's why there's such a movement to separate police uh, forensic labs from from police detectives, right? So there's no interplay between them. Here's what I'd say as far as the jury goes. Emmanuel uh, would probably be in prison right now if it was not for Ben Goldsmith. I don't mean that in, in a way that Ben is some, you know, superhero, but Ben is a uh, extremely intelligent, committed attorney who thought deeply about the DNA science and litigated the hell out of this case. And he really, really fought. He was like, this does this, the presence of this DNA does not mean that Emmanuel did it, especially if there's no plausible theory as to motive, and especially if there's other DNA that points to other people. And you know what? The jury, and this is also credit to Ben and his co-counsels, the jury understood that. You know, when we talked to the jurors, not Jeff, because he's kind of in a different bucket, but when we talked to other jurors, they were like, yeah, like, I'm not sure. They'd be like, well, I'm not sure I really understood all the technical details of the DNA, but I did know that there was a ton of DNA that was linked to other people, not just Emmanuel. So, yeah, maybe, maybe Emmanuel, but uh, like certainly doesn't put us beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So they did, they, they did um, get Ben's argument, right? It registered with them. Mm-hmm. It, it had this very powerful uh, scene in, near the end when you were talking about uh, Emmanuel and how this case affected him and, you know, how he was going off to his job and he seemed, you know, almost afraid uh, that he at any moment something could happen to him. And, and this kind of this whole case, you know, really shook him. Did What is he doing now? Is he what are his next steps as far as um, moving forward? So he's doing okay. Um, 
you know, as you might expect from a, a, a person who's been through what he's been through, uh, he's um, got a fair amount of what he thinks and I'm sure is true is some form of PTSD, right, from 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 being in jail. Um, he's got a job. He works um, overnight security. Uh, he bought himself a car, which we say at the end of the that last episode. Um, he has a network of friends. He's got his aunt and uncle. Um, but, you know, it's tough going, right? I mean, I think one of the, the peculiar tragedies of this is that if Emmanuel had been, I guess it's a peculiar irony, not a tragedy, is that if Emmanuel had been convicted and then his conviction was overturned, he'd be eligible for wrongful conviction relief from the county. Um, but because he was acquitted and not actually convicted, he's not entitled to the same sort of potential compensation. Now he does have a civil attorney and we didn't, didn't mention this, um, in the show because it, it happened more recently. Uh, he has a good attorney in Seattle and they, this attorney is preparing to sue on Emmanuel's behalf on three lines. Um, the, they're suing for the deprivation of civil rights, which is guaranteed by the fourth and 14th amendments. Um, they're suing for malicious prosecution and they're suing for negligence. Um, and this is all against King County. So we'll see. I mean, uh, that paperwork, I believe, has been filed, or if it hasn't been filed yet, it will be in the next few weeks, and that could provide some sort of relief and closure for Emmanuel. And Arp and his family are back in India. Have you reached out to them? Have they reached out to you? Have they have they listened to the podcast? I know that Arp and his friends, who we interviewed, uh, Shri and Lalitha, know the podcast is there as do Arp and his family and just feel it's a little too painful to listen to. I know that and this is true both of Arp and his sister and of her two closest friends that they're confused right like how by how this turned out and that's the sort of overwhelming feeling it's like how could this go on for how, how could this case and investigation and prosecution go on for so long and the way it did and not have anyone else charged right so it's like you know it's a question of like how did that happen and then it's also you know a question of rethinking what they thought they knew about the case um and you know, making room for the possibility that maybe Emmanuel didn't do it, which is, you know, as is often the case with the family of a victim or, or close friends, they're most in touch with the prosecution and, and police in the course of the trial. And I think that was the case here. So, yeah, it's kind of like, well, maybe what I knew about this case uh, isn't isn't exactly right. So there's a kind of, I think there's a kind of reckoning going on as well. Yeah, I mean, some of the scenes, and especially the Arpana singing the song, uh, I would imagine the, those would be tough uh, moments to relive. But at the same time, I would imagine the amount of energy and effort that's been put into this story does, does bring to light um, a side of Arpana and a side of, you know, of what happened that would not have come out. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, I'll say this about our parents, and I think it's, um, you know, we did everything in our power to make sure Arpana was depicted as a real person in this show, right? That she was not um, ever overlooked in any way. And obviously in the um, in the later episodes, it becomes much more about the trial. But we did want to wind up back with Arpana because she clearly was an amazing person, a fascinating person, and, and people do want to remember her. So if, if that's one takeaway that people have um well that 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 makes me feel good um that that she hasn't hasn't been flattened in some way since the podcast has aired um what what kind of response have you gotten you know I'll, i'll be really honest with you it's like you could almost use this show, and I, I hate that this is true, you could almost use this show as a political litmus test, right? And, and on, on a person's views on what the American criminal justice system is and what it should be. So um, if you are a leftish leaning person and you think that the American criminal justice system has a long way to go, and you're aware of the racism that has defined it for so many decades, you would think you you listen to this and think, okay, this sort of confirms what I'd, I'd, I'd feared or worried about. Of course, you don't often hear from people who um, want to tell you a uh, great job. In this case, I often hear from people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum and who say, um, well, how... How dare you make this about race um, when this was not about race? Or how dare you make these assumptions about racism in the criminal justice system or in the police or in in, in the ranks of prosecutors? Uh, how dare you over-broaden it like this and introduce something that's not there? And... You know, I don't I don't make it a habit to write back to many of these kinds of emails. But if someone is um, marginally uh, nice and open to hearing another point of view, I usually tell them about books that have influenced my thinking, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Um, and I point them to essays or stories that I've read that have influenced me. And I assure them that I still don't know exactly what happened in this case, but yes, I I do believe that in America we do have a problem and that it is a problem that needs to get solved. Uh, and I, I try to have those discussions when I can, but, you know, it really is, it's amazingly polarized, the response, amazingly, amazingly. And it makes me both glad that we did the show because I do think it, can get through to people and also a little depressed because it's like man everything that gets every piece of content that gets consumed in this country is like you arrive at it with your preconceptions on board and then you like or dislike it based on that so it's a it's been a little bit of a wake-up call in that regard seriously i could sit here for another three hours and talk to you um Matt, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great talk. I've learned a lot. Congratulations again on the podcast. You did an amazing job. I know how much work you put into it. It really captured me right from the beginning. So thanks again. 
Thanks so much, Matt. I, it was it was really great getting to have this talk, and I'm looking forward to listening to Fox Lake. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Suspect ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Okay, after you guys heard all 10 parts of these episodes from the Suspect podcast from Wondery, or Wondery, um, now now that that's done, that's the first season of Suspect, um, and now our five-part series is done. Um, there's a season two out already of Suspect. It is a different case. I don't know what case it is. But I will see on my end what it is. But I have a next case already. Um, I recently just found out that there's a new thing on Peacock. The NBC app for shows and, and movies and stuff. And there's a new documentary out there. And it's called Amber. Now I'll explain more about it, but I want you guys to listen to the trailer. And then in the next episode of Spill the Murder, we will hear the whole documentary. So without further ado, let me just blast this on my PC. Because it's on my computer, so let me get it. So, it's already there. Okay, here is the trailer to Amber. Everybody knows the Amber Alert. This is an activation of the Amber Alert system. I want the world to know who Amber was. Saturday, they decided they want to ride their bicycles. That was my last time seeing her. I saw a black pickup and he grabbed a little girl and he took off toward Dallas. I immediately thought, oh my gosh, she was targeted. Donna was going to make sure this would not happen to any other child. I wouldn't be here without her. If we just gotten the word out, she could have been found. Amber's killer is out there somewhere. We murdered my little girl. Everybody is a suspect. Fowls, would you please? The person who kidnapped and murdered Amber Hagerman is still alive. And that was it of the trailer of Amber. So, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Um, and I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Bye.